episode 247, April Sprintz, owner of the firm Driven Outcomes and author of the book, Magic Blue Rocks. I found this question so difficult to answer because I am such a lover of mistakes. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about April, her company, her book, her podcast, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 247. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is April Sprintz, owner of her firm, Driven Outcomes. April is a leading sales expert and business accelerator. She's generated over $1 billion in direct revenue in different roles. Uh, before I tell you a little bit more about April, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here. There's a lot to talk about. And I think that $1 billion, I saw, I was uh, looking at your LinkedIn, I think it says $1.2 billion. You keep mm-hmm. selling, is that right? Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to have the, uh, the show notes reflect that. $1.2 billion. I stand, I corrected myself, so I won't say stand correct. No, you were right when you said over $1 billion. $1.2 is over $1 oh, billion. Yes. Give yourself the credit. Fair enough. <laughs> that wasn't a mistake. You are absolutely you're correct. Um, beyond being uh, correct on that, April is also creator of what she calls the generosity culture. She's host of the top rated podcast, Winning Mindset Mastery. April's book uh, is titled Magic Blue Rocks, The Secret to Doing Anything. It's available as an audiobook, Kindle and paperback. Named as one of the top 22 entrepreneurs of 2023 by New York Weekly, April is a U.S. Air Force veteran and has been described as a force of nature. So, uh, April, thanks. Thank you for your service, by the way. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, top 22 of 23, that seems, while I'm playing around with numbers here, that seems like a missed opportunity that it wasn't the top 23 of 23. You know what? It was actually, Mark, a mistake. And it was a mistake that benefited a lot of people get, because get it was, no, it's, and you couldn't have even planted me to do this for you. But the list was supposed to be top 22 of 22. And it was supposed to come out in December and there were issues with the, the publisher, things like that. So it ended up coming out later and it was top 22 of 22 for like the first week of January. And someone else who was on the list, far more important than me, I'm sure, really put up a fuss and said, this is ridiculous. It should be for 23 since it came out late and they got people to change it. So it then was a year longer that, you know, you could kind of use it. So even though when I first saw it, I started laughing and I was like, top 22 of 22, telling you about it really up front in 23, I thought, oh, that worked out. And isn't that interesting given the title of your podcast, how often mistakes happen for us instead of to us in that kind of way? It's nice to be a beneficiary of a mistake that's that's in your in your favor, but nice to be included uh, in that list. So nice. Uh, Absolutely. 
a nice, uh, nice honor. So um, as, as we do, April, there's a lot of other things with uh, your work and background that I want to dig into today. But as we normally start off with here, the key question, what would you say is your favorite mistake? I found this question so difficult to answer because I am such a lover of mistakes. You said it, it's great to be a beneficiary of a mistake, and I feel like I have benefited from every single one. The one I chose to talk about because I found it so funny in hindsight is one I talk about in my book, but it's how I went about getting hired in my first corporate position after I'd left the military. And I was working as a temporary employee at a company that I was just really moved by their culture culture and the way that they did things and very impressed by the fact that I was supposed to be there for just a couple weeks. And I ended up being there much longer as a temporary employee and met the CEO on the first week I was there, ran into him six weeks later. He still remembered who I was, even though I had been a temporary employee and he knew that, asked me about how things were going. And I thought, you know what, this is a place where I'd like to work. And when I applied, because there really can be a disparity between the skills that a military member has and the way that a resume is read in the civilian world. So the human resources department said you're not qualified for this role that you've applied for. And, and what, was, what was that role? Sorry to interrupt. I applied, no, I applied for a role as a, a business marketing specialist. And I had seven years in the service, although that was in broadcasting, but I actually had a, a business degree and it was an entry level position. And I felt like I was absolutely qualified for it. So my mistake, part one was when HR said that, I wrote them a, a long email and told them all the reasons that they were wrong in thinking I wasn't qualified and that they might want to rewrite their job description to better include other options. Because if you're just hiring for skills, you're going to miss the opportunity to get somebody great who might just need to learn the job. And I completely made an enemy of that hiring person in human resources. It was not a fan. And uh, I actually still remembered that email when I wrote my book. And as I put that email in the book, I was cringing myself, right? 20 years later. Yeah, this, this was a little, I mean, you were trying to be polite, but I don't think I would have liked that girl either. And after sending that, I thought, you know, she might not do anything with this. I told her to take it to her supervisor and see what they could do. But just in case she doesn't, I have access to the leadership of marketing. I'm just going to go talk to them. I'm going to set up lunches. I'm going to go and see if folks want to have meetings with me. And I'm just going to tell them why they definitely want me to be on this team. And I, I basically violated every hiring rule, every etiquette rule, every piece of advice that you would have been given at that time. Now, what was super fortunate for me was the person who was not the head of marketing, but a person who was in leadership in marketing who had come from sales, just happened to recognize that I wouldn't take no for an answer. And he knew he'd be building another division. And he thought that having someone like that on his sales team would work. So that ended up working out for me only in the sense that he did end up offering me a role after counseling me that I could not operate in this guerrilla marketing type way that I had operated, that we would definitely need to work on. I believe what he said is he was like, you're like a diamond in the rough and I want to help polish you because you can't walk into you know banks and different financial institutions and some of the Fortune 500 companies that we work with and say, hey, you've got this all wrong. Here's what you need to do. But the attitude and tenacity had made an impression on him. 
So that was a huge mistake. To, the entire time I was at that company, by the way, that person in marketing would not look at me, would not talk to me, would not take my calls. But it ended up working out okay. Well, I'm glad it worked out okay. Um, so boy, they 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 wouldn't. Even though you got hired, they wouldn't let it go. Time didn't heal that wound, unfortunately. With no, because she was following her process, right? And her process was, I need to look for this word, this amount of years of experience, this thing and that thing. I think a lot of that is stuff that we've learned over the years that we can afford to be a little more flexible on, but that was very much her policy and process. And I'm sure she was great at everything else that she did because of that. Mm -hmm. It just was keeping her from hiring someone who would end up making some great strides in the company. Well, you said that was 20 years ago. I I read complaints online of, you know, some companies today, even it seems having unrealistic expectations for entry level positions of requiring X number of years of experience. And like what part of entry level do they not seem to understand? So I could understand being a little, um, peeved by like that seeming disconnect and and not to mention, I mean, you had experience, um, transferable skills. Now in, in the air force, you were in like a media, like internal television role, basically in the air force. Is that right? Right. So at the time, the only television network that the air force had or any of the military branches had access to overseas was the American Forces Network. So it was a television news anchor and reporter for them. So regardless of where people were stationed overseas, they still got their news in English. Mm-hmm. But I guess this company was having trouble maybe seeing the translation from, okay, leaving the military into the private sector, leaving news for marketing. I'm not defending their cautiousness and in, in bringing you on board, but it seemed like there were probably a couple of leaps for them to make to see the sure. to see the drive to see the talent that you were demonstrating absolutely and i think too that it was one of those things where people are hiring for a specific set of skills whereas i think that it, it works much better for many companies to hire for an attitude and maybe a skill set but a skill set that is not unique to one role because you're not hiring someone for this role and assuming they're going to be in that role for the rest of their career. You're looking for folks who are a good fit for the organization and who have the ability to learn, adapt, and grow. Because even if they had hired someone who had the exact skill set they were asking for, they would still have had to be trained to do the job. So I think it's really opening up the way that people think about that, whether it's military folks or it's new hires or someone who has a great track record of success, but now wants to switch industries and how can they apply that success to the new industry and being open-minded enough about people that you realize that that person could bring amazing, fresh new ideas. And I am grateful for that mistake that I did what I did, that I went after it because it always gave me empathy when there were folks who were trying to get around a process and figure out a way to be successful. And I think that there are folks that I was able to help throughout my career because I remembered what that was like. Yeah. Um, we talk about hiring for attitude. Um, at least the the person making the hiring decision liked your attitude, even if the HR person maybe Absolutely. had a different, a different view of that. But I mean, was there, um, so I think it's interesting hearing your story about writing the email. Like sometimes, I mean, you think, well, hey, if this is a lost cause, 
I can't make it worse by sending the email. But it sounded like you really were thinking of like, this is not, okay, in the rearview mirror, I don't mind burning the bridge. It sounded like you you were, though, trying to still pursue the Oh, no, I was, no, I was still trying to pursue it. Yeah. Yeah. And not only was I still trying to pursue it, Mark, I legitimately thought the company would be better if they opened up the way that they were doing the hiring. Because she said I wasn't qualified by reading my resume. She never spoke to me. Right. So she decided based on that piece of paper that I couldn't do it. And one, I thought, oh, no, you really do want me for this role and I I will be great at this. And I had been offered a different role at the company because I like I said, I was in a temporary role, which wasn't one. It wasn't the one that I wanted to stay with. And they had offered me that role. So it wasn't as if they were like, you're not a good fit culturally. You're not a good fit here. So I thought this could help. But I, I really felt and it's interestingly, when I look back almost a precursor to what I do in my role now. It's, oh, I can see a way for your company to be better and to grow and to have a better culture. I think you need to adjust your hiring process. What I didn't take into consideration was that I wasn't qualified in any way, shape, or form to give this advice other than my experience of how hiring that way on the civilian side of the military worked really well. If you had someone who was a qualified candidate and they did not fit the skill sets, they rewrote the job description to get that person. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you think um, you, you pursued that second path of, I don't know, I'm going to call it the end around going up to the senior leaders. Do you think you would right. have gotten the same outcome of just doing the end around without sending the well-intended, this would help you email? hundred percent. Like I could have left that email out altogether because that got me absolutely nowhere. And it's interesting that you asked that question because it's a great example of a reaction versus actually proactively doing something. The reaction to you're not qualified was the email and maybe you should look at this differently. But then when I took more time and was more thoughtful about it, my response was, okay, it's a no from her but she's not the end-all be-all of hiring decisions in this company. I'm going to find someone who is empowered to say yes. Yeah. And you're by far not the only one to come and tell a email mistake, you know, here in the podcast <laughs> series. Um, I, it all it often makes me reminisce about some of my email mistakes and like, you know, uh, 20 years has passed since some, some of mine as well. But I, I think I've gotten a little bit more mindful of, you know, writing the first draft in a careful way where I like, I can't accidentally hit send Mm -hmm. give a little bit more of a pause of like, do I really need to send this or not? Like, did, did you make adjustments when they counseled you, uh, you know, coming into the company about not sending a reactive kind of email oh, no. and they, your behavior they, in other ways or no, they loved the email. I, I'm sorry. I, I must've misunderstood your question because they, they not being the employee, but the leadership folks, they were like, that was really constructive. Oh, that was great. HR person hated the email. Yeah, yep. just her. But no, but they they did counsel me on, look, after you did that, you then went and you went to see if you could go to lunch with this person and have a meeting with this person. If you were selling, per se, and one of the folks that you tried to speak with didn't speak with you, and then you went to someone else, you'd have to be more elegant about it than you were here. And that's what I meant by the polish. But 
the email I think was a mistake because I was pushing up against an area where I wasn't going to make any progress instead of thinking outside the box and thinking, okay, what is another way that an exception can be made? I feel like this is something that would be beneficial for both sides. How can I find someone to speak to that would agree with that? Okay. So I have a better understanding now. So the email was certainly viewed as a mistake by the HR person, but the senior leaders kind of uh, appreciated it. But they're like, you shouldn't have done the end around. Be careful about that in the future. It's interesting. Different perspectives would view those different actions differently, but they still hired you. So good. Yeah, absolutely. And then how, how long did you stay at that company? Hopefully after going through all that, you didn't feel like it was a mistake. No, <laughs> it was, so it was, it was wonderful. The person who hired me became one of my greatest mentors. I was there for almost a decade and I ended up being one of their top salespeople. And my entire sales career after that was really molded by what I learned there, mm-hmm. which was a fantastic experience. I think I had four or five different roles there over the 10 years. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you didn't think that was a mistake then to, to show such uh, tenacity and creativity, you know, kind of find your way uh, in, in into that role. So um, thank you for, for you know, sharing that story and, um, you know, talking about that. So uh, again, we're joined by April Sprints. Um, let, let's talk about some of the other work that you do. And I love to hear the story behind uh, a company or a phrase or, or different names. So you know, your company is called Driven Outcomes. Tell us you know, a little uh, about the company and I, I'd love to hear the origin of the name, how that came to be and what it, what it represents to you. Absolutely. So Driven Outcomes is my firm that I started about seven years ago now. And the name actually came about before the company existed because I was in the startup world in a financial industry software company and working with a lot of leading industry consulting firms, and I won't use their names, but the big four were involved. And I would get frustrated sometimes at the way that the different consultants would show up to the meetings with our clients. So we would bring them in to help implement our product and service. And sometimes I'd have clients come to me and say, hey, can you leave uh, Jim, and that's a made-up name, out of the next meeting? Or is it okay if it's just us and this person isn't there? Because they would show up and they would talk a lot and they would add very little value. And I got more and more frustrated by the fact that I was like, do consultants just talk? And like nothing happens otherwise? Do they do anything? And I was having like a a venting session with my best friend in my kitchen on a Friday afternoon after a long call. And I said, I'm so sick of consultants. If I'm ever a consultant, if I ever have a consulting firm, I am going to call my firm something about outcomes, like driven outcomes. So the initials will be due and they will know that I get it and that I don't just talk and make excuses and charge big fees. So that ended up being the name of my company just maybe six months later when I started it because my my best friend was like, you need to write that down. I think you have something there. (laughs) And, um, as a consultant, and I'll try not to sound defensive about this. It's hard to generalize about consultants. <laughs> Absolutely. And that was a moment in time. And even when I say, and I, I mentioned Big Four, not because I want to knock at them. I want to tell you, these are companies who've done exceptional, amazing things. But my experience over about a two-year period with a myriad of these consultants was that they weren't really adding value. And I just think that adding value for your clients and customers is the whole reason you're there. Yeah. Yeah. 
So not just activity, but outcomes, not just effort, but results. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, Now, one thing that sort of really caught my attention when I was first introduced to you and the idea of being on the show, um, you mentioned earlier, I love this phrase, that you're a lover of mistakes. And one thing I I noticed, I'm like, oh, I absolutely have to have uh, April on the podcast here is a series of posts that you've done on LinkedIn Fail Friday posts. Yes. Um, Love usually with photos that might be hard to describe um, <laughs> audibly here. But, but you know, tell us kind of maybe about a typical fail Friday post and, and, and why, do you, why do you share like that, to share those fails? Absolutely. So first, the reason. Here's why I share the fails. I think in any company and in life, if failure is not only encouraged, but also celebrated in a way, people will be afraid to go outside of their comfort zone. They'll be afraid to go for it. If failure is punished, you kill innovation. And I remember hearing the story of Sarah Blakely and her brother when they were growing up. And they both grew up in, you know, just a middle class home. Yet her and her brother both grew up to, in separate industries, be billionaires. And I think that a lot of that is due to the fact that every night what their father asked them was, what did you fail at today? So I've always found failure very encouraging. And there was a gentleman on LinkedIn, a a young Gen Z person who's really in the leadership world and very interested in helping folks in Gen Z be leaders who posted a fail Friday post and then just talked about something he messed up at. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. And I have so many mistakes (laughs) that I've learned from. I could share those with people and then they could learn from them too. One of the examples that I shared was actually from my military days. And it's humbling to share this and and a little embarrassing, but that's what makes it such a good share. And it was that I was younger than the army sergeant that I was with in Afghanistan And she always called me princess in the dirt because I wasn't exactly what she thought a a soldier or an airman should look like. And she was asking me for directions on how to get back to the base that we were at. And at the time, I had told her a day or two before, I have a terrible sense of direction. I've never had land navigation training like you did in the Army. I am a broadcaster. But I also come across very confident and like I know what I'm talking about. And I told her that too. I said, I sound like... I know what I'm doing, but I won't. I will probably take us the wrong way, so don't listen to me. Well, she must have forgotten because here we are going around everywhere. And I say it's embarrassing because I had prepped my gear to go overseas because luckily I I had friends who were in special operations and things. And they were like, you've got to do things to prep your boots so they don't blister your feet, those sorts of things. And she hadn't. So as I'm leading her around like crazy, her feet are bleeding. And I will not tell her I'm lost because my ego won't let me. My pride is like, she is finally listening to me. I've just got to find the way back to where we need to go. I cannot tell her I have messed up again. And finally, we see some people and she asks them for directions and we're able to make it back to the base by going about 20 minutes in the opposite direction of the way that we've been going. And I, like two days later, was able to redeem myself, so to speak, by taking over a broadcast when she was sick and doing her job, right? So I was able to actually show where I was capable in a way that didn't lead to somebody being hurt, right? The lesson is, 
the person who's the loudest and the most confident doesn't (laughs) necessarily know. Right. And we should absolutely be willing to say, I don't know this. I can't do this because sometimes letting our pride lead us around will cause other people in in this case, physical pain because I wasn't willing to admit it. Yeah. And sounding authoritative. um, I mean, it sounds like maybe a, a helpful trait for a newscaster, like, is there, is there training for that or does it just come naturally and that's how you end up in that position or both? I don't know that there's training for it, but I think that's part of how you get to be able to do it because you sound like, you know, what you're talking about. Cause basically we have most news anchors. I don't want to speak for everyone, but most news anchors have cocktail party level knowledge about whatever subject they're talking about. Right. You ask them more than three questions deep and they, they don't know unless they're particularly interested in it. So I think that's something that lends to the job itself. But one of the things that I also learned from that and applied in my corporate career is as a loud person or someone who would raise my hand or give my opinion, I am really looking for what the quiet person has to say. Mm, that's yeah. yeah, that's important. And helping them feel safe to speak up, even when there's somebody louder and or at a higher rank in the room because that's sounding authoritative in some ways can help a consultant or an executive, but it maybe also leads to the trap of, it sounds like at that point you weren't good yet at openly sharing about mistakes. Not at all in no way, shape or form. And you are now, how do, how do you think that evolved? Did, did, Did you have some coaching? Was it a reflection where now you, you admit, you admit these so freely. I think that's a great question. So for me, and I can't speak for everyone, but for me, it came from developing actual confidence. Whereas when I was younger, most of what people interpreted as confidence was bravado, right? I was just trying to fake it until I made it. And so the idea that I would be found out, the imposter syndrome of, I don't know what I'm talking about was terrifying. And I think so many people have said this in much better ways, but the older you get, the less you realize you know, and the more okay with that you become. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's true. And that that's a great point about true confidence, quiet confidence versus bravado. Um, I mean, sometimes the, the most outwardly braggadocious people you meet are covering, masking some sort of kind of deep insecurity. Look, I'm not a psychologist. And, but but yeah, sometimes that's an over overcompensation. Uh, where I think you know, I, I, that's why I always love people who are willing to come on this podcast who have the confidence to say, "Yeah, I, I'm successful, but I make mistakes, and I've made mistakes, and I learn from them." And the confidence to admit that um, is 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 yeah, I love highlighting that. And thank you for for being one of those people. Absolutely. But one thing that I left out on that earlier story is. That circled the whole company, what I did. And it was about a 3,000 person company and Mm. everyone knew. And my nickname was Attila the Hun. (laughs) (laughs) So how quickly did that that get back to you though? (laughs) um, I didn't know for a while. Like I knew that there were certain people, but I didn't know that everyone knew that, you know, I basically had the reputation of the bull in the China shop. What was interesting, though, is even when I did find out is just, okay, well, that's not who I am. I totally get why they think that. 
there's nothing, no mistake that you make that a bunch of success can't overcome. And that's something that I tell folks when something happens, whether it's personally or professionally or in your social group, they're like, oh, I can never go back. I fell down or I, you know, whatever it is that they did. It's like, one, people aren't paying near as much attention to you as you think they are. They had probably forgotten about it two or three days after I'd gotten there. Right. And two, success overcomes all. I mean, think of the big scandals that different people have had throughout history. And if they did something amazing after that, the scandal stops being the conversation. Hmm. And it seems like there was a missed opportunity. They didn't call you Aprilla the Hun. I know, right? I mean, be a little creative about it, maybe. This is HR. This wasn't marketing who's telling me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I have nothing against HR. That was mean. <laughs> um. So one other thing I wanted to ask you is um, about some of your thoughts on building rapport by sharing mm-hmm. mistakes and, and and what you've learned about that. Oh, I love that. So from a leadership perspective, I don't think there's anything you can do that's better than sharing mistakes with your team. Share them early, share them often, share them all the time. And not only because it starts to build rapport, but because sharing that vulnerability makes you a real person. And it also allows people to see that maybe they view you on this pedestal, like you're this amazing person that they hope one day to be, but you've done something that they would do and you still got to that place. And you are, like I said, a real person. And in doing that, in sharing your mistakes, you can say it's okay to make mistakes with your team. And that sounds like a platitude. And it sounds like something that you're saying because you're supposed to say it. But when you share the areas that you've made mistakes in, and as a leader, I love sharing the mistakes like when they are right out of the oven, like I just did it yesterday, because those are the ones where they say, oh, she's still doing that. She's still pushing the envelope or going the extra mile. And maybe it went badly. But as I always used to tell my my team and my troops, if you did the wrong thing for the right reason, you are not in trouble. Mm. Never. We will mm-hmm. figure it out. Mm. Nice. Um, yeah. I love the way you state that. Um, some of these platitudes or encouragements around, you know, cultural things around, um, we want you to speak up. Like, well, okay. It's one thing to say that, but mm-hmm. to, to, um, to welcome that and to reward that. I mean, I think it's a, a different category of the actions meaning more than the words as, as you said so well oh we all make mistakes that's okay but then we punish the first admission of a mistake those words are worthless absolutely absolutely and i don't think people believe words in so many situations especially coming in to turn around a company i would say to people don't listen to anything i say i mean listen as much as you want but just watch what i do And within two weeks, you'll know whether or not you can trust me. And that I think can be incredibly powerful because I feel like so often people are saying, don't pay attention to what I do. Just listen to what I'm telling you. Yeah. Now, um, looking back, do do you think you learned a lot of these leadership lessons or habits or behaviors from your time in the Air Force? hundred percent. You know, I've never encountered better leaders than I Mm -hmm. have during my time in the military and then volunteering with military members and veterans since then. And when I was in the military, I thought that the civilian world was so much better. I just had this grass is greener 
kind of ideal. And I remember thinking, wow, I can't wait to see what the corporate world is like if like we're doing these things. And then when I got to the corporate world, there were absolutely great leaders. But what I think that the corporate world was and is missing is a real plan to mentor and teach people how to lead. Because even if you have a knack for it, I don't think anyone is a natural leader. I think that they have been mentored and taught and learned. And if we formalize that as early as possible and identify those people who want those skills, mm-hmm. all of our organizations would benefit. I agree with you. Absolutely. And we've all, I think, seen in different industry situations where the best individual contributor has been made a manager and sort of with the maybe oh, spoken yeah. or unspoken, like, yeah, you know, you'll figure it out. And sometimes they do. Sometimes mm-hmm. they don't. But like you said, I think it depends greatly on the examples being set for them, who were their mentors. You know, I think, you know, some companies do this formal leadership education. I wonder, maybe, maybe this is just a rhetorical question, if that matters as much as who you're working with and what you see them doing as a leader, as opposed to what somebody might say in a leadership. Sure. Sure. Well, but I think also you made such a great point where you said a great individual contributor and then they put them in the role and they say, figure it out. I think corporate America is the only place where we do that because I sure as heck did not see the owner of the Chicago Bulls saying what we need Michael Jordan to do is coach the team. He, no one would have ever done that, right? Taking someone who had such joy in playing the game and was so good at playing the game and not ask him and say, we're going to make you the coach. <laughs> yeah. And the, the military is more intentional in developing and promoting people through the ranks. It is. And what's interesting is showing an aptitude for leadership is one of the things that gets you promoted. So if you don't want to be in charge of people, you don't want to lead them. And it's probably different now, right? It's been 20 years and I'm sure it's different depending on career field. But where I worked, it would slow down your promotion potential. potential. You wouldn't get to as high of a rank. So to put it in corporate terms, you wouldn't make vice president, but you could be an individual contributing director who was just gone to as the person to help teach people how to become more of a master of that skill. I think that's something that we're missing again in the corporate world, which is letting people make that choice. Do I just want to be just really skilled at what I do and the best at that and contribute in that way and valued monetarily and otherwise, and and maybe I help train other people, but I don't want to be responsible for them. I don't want to have to deal with their growth and mentoring them because that's not my skill set and then let other people go on a leadership track. And I think the companies that we see do this have tremendous results, but most companies think, oh, I really want you to be able to do both. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I I believe some of the consulting firms and one aerospace and defense company that I I know about has developed kind of like these technical lead, uh, technical fellow or technical leadership Mm -hmm. track and consulting, like, you know, there, there was this assumption that uh, the only way to move up in terms of level and compensation was to get, be into people leadership and selling. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't want to do those things and they would lose talent that would still be of value to the company. And so right. is that some of these different tracks get created to give an alternative pathway to keep them and, and to be able to pay them what they're worth without some of the traditional requirement to move up the the leadership chain. 
And I think that's great. I love that. And I love seeing changes in that way because ultimately, again, that centers around value. What is the value that they're bringing to our organization? Managing people isn't the only value. And I think if we're candid, there are lots of people in those roles who are not adding value. They're subtracting from it. (laughs) Yeah. uh, For some reason, I'm thinking of the phrase lead, follow, or get out of the way. And some of the leadership... Some of the sometimes get out of the way is better mm-hmm. than quote unquote leadership, depending on how that word's being defined by somebody in a given place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, our guest again today, uh, April Sprints. Um, tell us about your book, April, Magic Blue Rocks, The Secret to Doing Anything. I, I, so, I looked into this a little bit, but the listener maybe has not. That, that's an interesting title, right? It's a terrible title if we're being – that could have been a mistake story, Mark. Yeah. But it makes sense if you read the book. But the thing is, is a title should make sense even if you don't read the book. So just, you know, learn from my mistake. But well, magically rock. Well, just to, uh, sorry to interrupt, but to interject. But um, you know, coming up with a book title is uh, uh, an art. And, and I got some coaching when I was doing my last book is that either the title or the subtitle should offer intrigue and then the other should offer something very direct. So I don't know if your title was a mistake because Magic Blue Rocks, I think that's, that's high on intrigue. The secret to doing anything is making a pretty direct promise. Oh, this book will help me. I love me. this. I, I Mark, where I- were you when I first <laughs> published and I thought, I think it was a miss. <laughs> I mean, it's a judgment so, call and for each to decide, but you know, but anyway, but sorry, tell us more about this book with the interesting title. No, you're good. I love it. So Magic Blue Rocks, it was my first business when I was six years old and found out I was poor. And the book itself is six short stories of candidly mistakes <laughs> made in life and or just anecdotal stories of how I navigated a problem or a situation and the lesson that I learned. But what they do besides make people laugh because I'm really good at falling on my face and I do it, I think, in a decently entertaining way. And it also, though, helps people build a bedrock of belief in themselves. And that's really the first step towards creating a a great mindset that empowers you and allows you to do whatever you want. And this book shows you how possible it is by taking one regular person, me, and showing how applying these principles led to this extraordinary life. And I'm not special. These are just the things I did. And this is how not only was it helpful to me, and this is what it did for me, but applying the same principle will do it for anyone who chooses to apply it. And it's very important to me when I write books that they're short, that you could read it cover to cover on a flight from LA to New York, because I think that it feels good if you can finish a book. (laughs) That sense of accomplishment. Yes, there are some overwhelming books. Um, So back to the secret of doing anything, the secret to the secret to finishing a long book. That's, that's a. There you go. Divided into chunks. That's the secret. (laughs) Chapter at a time, I guess, but I hope people will check that out. More stories, more sharing uh, from April about mistakes. And as you put it, the lessons learned, that's what we try to do here on the podcast. And thank you for bringing so much to that discussion here today, um, April, maybe final question. Um, people listening to the podcast might want to find another podcast to listen to. Yours is Winning Mindset Mastery. Tell us a little bit about your show. 
Absolutely. So my podcast is very short episodes. They're all 10 minutes or less. And it is a how-to on how to develop a winning mindset. So a mindset that empowers and works for you and helps you get all the things in life that you want, happiness and your relationships, your career, money, whatever it is. Here are the short how-to steps for how to get yourself there and quickly. I hope people will check that out. They could listen to four of your episodes in the time that that we took today. But I'm very grateful that we had a good 40 minutes together here, April, to hear your stories and your insights and your lessons learned on learning from mistakes and more. So I really appreciate you doing that and, and being here today. Oh, thank you. It was my honor, Mark. I appreciate you having me. Well, thanks again to April Sprints for being a wonderful guest today. To learn more about her and everything she does, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 247. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.